My name is Jacob, and I am the preaching minister here. I'm in a sermon series right now on King David. We've been looking at the life of David in a series called David, the Heart of the King. And we're going to continue on in this series, but we're not going to ignore the fact that it is Easter. Uh, Last week, we saw that David was filled with the Spirit of God, and he was successful in King Saul's court. But then Saul became jealous of David, tried to kill him, so he has to flee for his life. And he's on the run for 10 years years. And so this morning, Easter Sunday, as we focus on the cross and the empty tomb, I want you to listen to some scriptures. If I do it right this morning, you're going to hear more from scripture than you're going to hear from me. And, uh, and that's a good thing. But I want you to listen to some scriptures from these two different kings, from King David and King Jesus, at a time in their lives when the whole world was against them. We're going to listen to these scriptures, and then we're going to look at the faith that they had, even in the midst of their struggles. So I want to invite uh, Justin to come on up here, and I want to also invite Chris Bevington. Where's Chris? He was here earlier. Oh, good. He's still here. That's, that's really good news. And these guys are going to go back and forth. Justin is going to share some David scriptures with us, and Chris is going to share some Jesus scriptures with us. And I'm going to turn it over to them. Uh, listen to these stories. All right. This comes from 1 Samuel. When the men were returning home, after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. But then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered, Look, I am bringing him out to you. Let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, 
He was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked. Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a palace known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the palace or to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on his staff, and ordered it to Jesus to drink. Mockingly, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. Thanks, guys. David and Jesus, both men hated, despised, and rejected. And in these scenes, we see each man's enemy is shouting for their death. 
And Jesus and, and David kind of have a lot in common, the king thing. Um, but they're also, they're also both connected by Psalm 22. And that's where I want to go next in the scriptures. Psalm 22 is a psalm that was written by David, and it's the psalm that Jesus recalls and prays while he's hanging on the cross. It's where we get that line that Chris read for us a moment ago. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David experienced rejection and threats from enemies on all sides numerous times throughout his life. One commentator on Psalm 22 says, from the tenor of the whole composition, it appears that David does not here refer merely to one persecution, but comprehends all the persecutions which he suffered under Saul. Kind of a, uh, a collection of hurt, uh, a catalog of pain. And I wonder if that's something that we can relate to. Oftentimes it's not just one thing that is going on in our lives that we cry out to God with, but it's a pile of things, or one thing after another, and then in our frustration we say, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And even though this psalm reflects real pain and real need, the thing that I want you to see this morning is that Psalm 22 is both a cry for help and an expression of praise and trust. It is both prayer and praise at the same time. Listen to the psalm. And listen for, for the cry and then also the praise, because it kind of alternates back and forth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And then the praise. And yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises, and in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone. It kind of goes on from here, back and forth, cry and praise. All the people who see me mock me. They say, he trusts in the Lord. They make fun of me for believing. And then it goes back to the praise. And yet, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. Do not be far from me, Lord. And then more cries, more pain, more anguish, because there's a lot there to work with. Many bulls surround me. There's roaring lions, and they tear their prey. I'm being poured out like water. My heart turns to wax. My mouth is dried up. Dogs surround me. David says, my bones are all on display because I'm so famished and vulnerable. It's the cry. But then, again, we get the praise. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And then if you get down to verse 22, kind of after this back and forth, this cry and this praise, and I don't know if I can trust you, but I've decided to trust you, you kind of get this resolution. David here says, I've decided what I'm going to do. And this is before everything is resolved, before everything is hunky-dory again. David says, I'm going to praise you. That's what I've decided to do. So listen to the rest of this psalm, this declaration of praise. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. 
All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Psalm 22 is a prayer for help and a praise for that help at the same time. It's kind of a preemptive thank you. It's like if you were writing a letter to somebody and you were going to ask them for money and uh, you said, I really need this money, please give it to me, consider my request. And then in the same envelope, you wrote them a thank you note. Thank you for the money that you so generously gave me. If I got a letter like that, I'd be like, that's pretty presumptuous, although that makes me feel good. I must be a generous, trustworthy kind of guy. But it's those two things in the same envelope and sent off. I want you to do this, and I trust that you will. And I would go as far as to say, even if you don't, I still believe in your faithfulness. I still believe in your generosity. Even if I don't see a resolution to this problem, I'm not going to stop praising you because I've decided to do that. Psalm 22 is prayer and praise in the same breath. It's the prayer of David in the wilderness, and it's the prayer of Jesus on the cross. And ultimately, it's an expression of trust in God Most High. As I think about Jesus, as I think about David, as I read this psalm, I wonder if that's the kind of trust that I can come to have in God. Can I learn to pray like this? Can we learn to cry out to God with this much confidence in his love? And what we see as we look at the life of David, though he was on the run for 10 years, though people were trying to kill him and end his life and take him out of the picture, God delivered David from his enemies. Not just once, but time and time again. But we're not here today just to celebrate David's successes. And we see, too, that God delivered Jesus from death. But we're not just here today to celebrate the empty tomb as significant as that is. Today, and each day, we celebrate God's faithfulness. His ability to rescue his people and his desire to rescue his people. With that in mind, I want you to hear the story of the empty tomb of Jesus. This is John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and he bent over and looked at the strips of linen that were lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one, the other one at the foot. And th uh, they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away. 
she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that, she, uh, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. This is a little bit weird. I'll take a moment to say this. He breathed his breath on them. This isn't like a breath freshness check here, I don't think. I think that this is kind of a callback to the beginning of the Bible, where we hear about God's care in his creation. Where God creates mankind, he forms them from the dust and the ground, and then what does he do? He breathes his life into us. So this is new life. This is Jesus out of the tomb. This is the kingdom coming. This is a new beginning. So listen to it again. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, hmm, well, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. This time Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it to my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, and then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And the chapter ends with this. The, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the story of the empty tomb. Last week, I mentioned that we have these new crosses that are hanging up here on stage. If you weren't here last week, or if this is your first time here at all, these are only a week old. And last week, I, I pointed these out, and I said, I like these crosses. Jim made these crosses. And I was talking with Jim about these crosses after church last Sunday, and the more I talked to Jim about them, the more I like these crosses, because he told me more about the process that uh, he constructed these crosses with. This cross over here, you can tell, is different from this one. Jim will admit this was his practice cross. This was his first attempt, and so it didn't turn out as well. 
<laughs> as this one. It's a rougher construction. You can see the glue in between the cracks. It's, it's sanded, but it's, it's not quite as smooth as the other one. Jim told me this cross was made from pallet wood, and if you know what a wood pallet is, it's the thing that you carry other stuff on. It's a utilitarian kind of wood. It's the, it's the bottom crate thing that you, you, you transport things with. And when you're done with your crate, you throw it aside, you reuse it, you burn it, whatever. Um, this was reclaimed, recycled wood from a pallet. The cross here, these, these were the nails that were pulled out of this pallet. They're rusty and they're old and they're twisted together. This cross tells a story. This is kind of like the Jesus on the cross cross. This is something that maybe we can relate to. This cross over here is different. Looks a little nicer. It's a, a, a lot smoother. It's made from a, a nicer mahogany wood. And it, it just it kind of stands out as a contrast to this other cross. If this is the Jesus on the cross cross, this is the Jesus walking out of the tomb cross. And it really tells a story from death to life, from birth to rebirth, new life in Christ. And they tell our story as well. It's the story of being, found, being lost and then being found in Christ. And the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to redeem us, to restore us, to remake us, and we become new creations in Christ. Just as Jesus was bruised and broken and buried, but then was resurrected to new life, we too have the opportunity to experience new life in Christ. And that is the gospel message. And that also explains why there's so a lot of the Easter symbolism that we see this time of year. If you ever scratch your head and wonder, I don't get what all the rabbits are about, or I don't know why we make such a big deal about eggs, or what about these spring colors? Who cares? Why can't I just wear my black shirt today? Lisa, why do I have to wear a purple polo? Maybe that's just me. Why the feasting? Why the celebrating? Why the chocolate? Why do my kids come home from an egg hunt with mounds and mounds of chocolate that I have to regulate them eating throughout the rest three or four weeks? The answer is the same for all of those things. It all points to new life. New life is the theme. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, he had new life, and he offered for us new life in him. That's the gospel message. And if this renewed life in Christ is something that you need, if you look at your life and go, ah, I'm feeling this cross, but I want to be here. The thing that stands in between, the, the, the road to get there, I believe is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the risen Lord. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if that's where you're at, if you feel like renewed life is what you need this morning, then I encourage you to think about what the next step to getting there looks like. Because we're all in different places, and I can't just prescribe, this is what you ought to do. But for you, it might be opening your Bible. You might be inspired by this story of Jesus and say, I want to know more about him. Not just about the empty tomb, because I hear this every Easter. I want to see how he treated people. I want to see his wisdom. I want to see the things that he taught. I want to see his divinity. I want to see this example that's supposed to be worth following. That might be a next step for you. Going public with your faith might be a next step for you. You may have a very close relationship with the Lord, but... Maybe people in your life don't know about that. Baptism could be a next step for you. Committing your life to Jesus. Going into the water, being immersed, coming up for the forgiveness of your sins and receiving the Holy Spirit. It could be becoming more connected with your brothers and sisters in Christ, becoming more involved 
here at this church. Like I said, I don't know what the next step is for you, but it's something that's worth considering this morning. A next step that I encourage all of us to take is read Psalm 22 this week. Throughout this David series, at the end of every sermon, I prescribe a psalm, and I say, let's, as a congregation, read this psalm together. Let's read it once a day, and then let's write a prayer as a response to it. If you want to know what some of those prayers sound like, you can look in the foyer on the, the prayer board out there. But I encourage you to participate in this. It will help you express to God what needs to be said. And as you read this psalm, you'll be listening to what God wants to say to you as well. So Psalm 22 is the take-home psalm. You might spend some time in that this week. This is a psalm that will show you how to cry and celebrate at the same time. It's both prayer and praise together. If I can be any encouragement to you or help you figure out what a next step looks like, I'm going to go from here uh, into the lobby, and I'm there hanging out. You can, my number is also on these bulletins. You can text me. You can call me. I'm available for you. Um, but let's stand together and worship the risen Jesus. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. <laughs>